Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discussed the humble filing cabinet, talked about a summer of public art, and dove into how zoning affects Chicago's communities. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, the Biden Files, and much, much more. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review for June 25th, 2021. Chuck Mertz chatted with media studies scholar Craig Robertson about the history of the filing cabinet. Robertson discussed how this seemingly innocuous bit of office furniture profoundly shaped the way that information and data have been sorted, stored, retrieved, and used. The filing cabinet emerges here as a sophisticated piece of information technology that continues to shape how we interact with information and data in today's digital world. Who knew? This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. So how efficient did the filing cabinet make society? Because, you know, we're suffering from climate change caused by burning fossil fuels and a pandemic spread by globalization. So how efficient are or were filing cabinets? Or do we always look at the previous generation of information gathering and storage as wrong and obsolete? Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's no denying that in its time, when it emerges in the beginning, so the filing cabinet's invented in the 1890s in the United States, and in the first decades of the 20th century, it's definitely understood to be a very efficient technology. Like, it is understood to be a way in which you can easily access information. Um, I think, And I mentioned early in the book um, an anecdote about an um early 20th century Secretary of State who asks for correspondence around a particular um, a particular issue that's occurring, and he gets like delivered half a dozen or so large bound volumes with these letters scattered through. And that's when he says, no, you know, we've got to bring in some form of numerical filing or decimal filing and bring in um, a filing cabinet. So I think in its time, it was understood to be efficient right um and you know you the cynic could argue that it's like you know the um the idea of climate change for example the climate crisis is a product (laughs) of capitalism pushing itself you know to be more and more efficient ignoring all non-economic values right um compartmentalizing in the way that you know we've suggested the filing cabinet allows us to think Did a desire for standardized efficiency create filing cabinets, or did filing cabinets create a desire or need for standardized efficiency? Were filing cabinets something the public wanted, or was it something that was imposed on them? Um, Well, the filing cabinet, I think it's something that the business world wanted in the 1890s, because the late late. 19th century has its own form of um, information overload, right? As I said earlier, you've got corporations developing, you've got businesses operating on a larger, large, uh, larger scale, producing more and more paper because you have carbon paper and typewriters being invented. So more and more loose paper is circulating. So there is this sort of demand, but even after it was invented in the early 1890s, it kind of lay dormant for another you know, six, seven, eight years. So there was an, uh, there was sort of a need for it um, to some extent in offices. And then when it arrived, it really was understood within the world of um, efficiency. And it was understood as something that could really help and benefit people. In terms of outside of the business world, as I argue in the book, the filing cabinet sort of comes, I would argue, into the home indirectly in the form of changes in storage in things like kitchen cabinets and closets 
which take on the same kind of partition logic of the of the um, of the Manila folder and the tab and giving giving everything its own particular place. And you were mentioning how it came back into the home in a certain way. I had this thought about design. You cite a filing cabinet patent reading, the flat file permits the use of but one hand, while with the vertical file, both hands are used, thus increasing speed. That is, papers filed vertically are accessible, compact, and sanitary. And you add, advocates believe the last of those uh, characteristics was critical to the health of an efficient worker, and that being sanitary. Is there some sort of connection maybe between the sanitary filing cabinet and the sanitized design of offices where there are or were filing cabinets. When we see these images, granted, these are media-generated, uh, entertainment-generated images. You see these dark, musty, old offices with tons of books on the wall. And then when you see the emergence of the filing cabinet, it seems like the workplace becomes sanitary. Was there an effect? Uh, did uh, filing cabinets have an effect on the design, overall design of the workplace? I would say they were part of a, of a rethinking of the office as a space, right? So the office is a space designed to organize people and objects. And so in that late 19th, early 20th century, you have an increased focus on work and labor. So, you know, the idea is that, the, you know, the, the, the filing cabinet is sanitary because you want your workers to be healthy because you want your workers to be productive. So it's not that you were genuinely interested in the health of your workers. You're generally interested in their productivity. So the filing cabinet emerges in this into as part of this rethinking of the office around efficiency. So therefore around this idea of cleanliness. And as you say, we see that in the catalogs, there's limited archival um, sources to help us really understand how clean offices were, but they definitely in promoting the filing cabinet and new flat top desks, they really wanted, and chairs, they really wanted to emphasize a contrast with this old, dusty, very masculine office. We are speaking with the author of The Filing Cabinet, a vertical history of information media studies scholar, Craig Robert Robertson. He is Associate Professor of Media Studies at Northeastern University and is also the author of the 2012 work, The Passport in America, The History of a Document. You can follow Craig on Twitter at Craig, followed by the number 2 Robertson. That's Craig 2 Robertson, you write the office that a filing cabinet found itself in was a different space from its 19th century equivalent. The breakdown of the work of a general clerk into specialized tasks underwrote the change. The office equipment industry provided products to facilitate that specialization. Women operated this new office equipment with their work illustrating the gendered labor critical to the 20th century project of efficiency. Why was the gendered labor of women operating office equipment critical to efficiency in the 20th century? How dependent was efficiency on gendered labor? Well, efficiency was dependent on cheap labor. And so this is where women come in offering cheap labor. And the, the assumption here is that you can get a, like the very sort of gendered heteronormative um, set of ideas here under, believes and understands that the man is the main breadwinner in the house. So the woman, if she's doing work, is either a daughter helping out the family um, or a wife helping out a husband, but they're never the main breadwinner. So they can be paid less 
And then there is also the assumption that a woman um, upon getting married will leave, will stop working and go home to work unpaid um, to be um, a wife and a mother. And it's uncertain how there are in some businesses and some in, in some forms of business, um, there was what was referred to as a marriage bar where a woman was basically fired um, when she got married. But even if that wasn't that pervasive, what that did was it pushed women into work in where um, there was no hope of promotion or there was no possibility of promotion because you wouldn't invest your time training a woman if she was going to leave um, when she got married. So efficiency uh, really does depend on a very gendered notion and understanding of labour, um, particularly around the, what the cost and the cheapness of labor for labor of women's labor. And then that then gets linked to an idea that women um, are ideally suited for unskilled labor. And then women are ideally suited to be some form of quote unquote machine operator because um, of their nimble fingers and their sort of quote unquote natural dexterity. And that of course is how sort of the changes in the office brought, a, brought about by gendered understandings of efficiency are sort of naturalized um, through this understanding of women's um, innate natural dexterity. And you point out the, about the gender division of the modern office assigned to women to assist men. In contrast, men read the files doing work understood to require thought. The women were just doing the manual work. They wouldn't understand what the piece of information was, but they would under and what it meant in the bigger picture. But they would understand where that piece of information was and where they could get it when it was necessary to be retrieved and brought to a man for him to decipher the knowledge that comes from all these pieces of information. So how much did the filing cabinet contribute to women being viewed as intellectually inferior to men? I mean, I think it, it reinforces, I um, mean, obviously it's not a cause here, but it definitely reinforces that idea. And that idea is used to, to justify and structure the division of labor in the in the office, and of course, there there are situations where certain women circumvent that and and can succeed and be promoted. But generally, um, the idea of office work really did, um, if you like, stabilize this idea that um, women were not suited to um, intellectual work, and and this really comes through in the way in which filing cabinets are advertised. Um, I kept coming across these images of um, filing cabinets with their drawers open, right? Showcasing, showcasing the manila folders and the with tabs and the and the guides with tabs, which are all emphasizing the the discrete, precise information that can be found in a file drawer. And what they often showed were hands, disembodied hands, you know, showing how you would retrieve or find this information. And I found those ads very powerful, right? Because what they to me, in showing how you use the filing cabinet, they they also modeled the ideal relationship of, of um, technology and labor that we're talking about here, that the file cabinet did not require thought, right? You have the disembodied hands separated from the body, separated from the mind, because um, the filing cabinet is, in the language of advertising of the day, does all the thinking for you. Right. And so therefore, this becomes a job that is understood to be suited to a woman um, rather than a man. 
Kiefer Dunn spoke to organizer, writer, and attorney Ramson Cannon about zoning and land use in the city of Chicago. Cannon covers the basics of zoning, the legal perspective on land use, and why all this matters to both aldermen and activists. Building on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the third Saturday of every month at 2. Ramson, how you doing? Good, Kiefer. Good, Kiefer. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, uh, happy to have you here. Um, and the reason for the season today is we're going to talk about zoning, because I know that zoning is a big part of um, your organizing practice, but also you just recently gave a presentation to 33rd Ward Working Families talking about sort of uh, uh, an organizer's guide to zoning. Um, we can throw the video uh, link to that in the show notes. But um yeah, I, you know, it was a really interesting presentation and, you know, we, we gab about zoning all the time. <laughs> it's like time, time is right to get Ranson on the show here. Yeah. Um, yeah. When me like, and Kiefer get together for a, for a, for a dude's night, just some drinks <laughs> and talking about zoning. You know? That's right. Yeah. Party. You know, <laughs> it's a, a real party. Yeah. Uh, hard hitting question though, mm-hmm. um, to kick us off. Are there any land use attorney specific lawyer jokes that, you know, <laughs> oh man i know i've heard one because i used to go to cl uh continuing legal education conferences and stuff Uh um so i i know i've heard one but off the top of my head i can't yeah that's what i have like a i have like a cle book that like a training manual somewhere if i can find it i'll dig it out because i know it had little like cartoons uh, great. Yeah, we can't wait. And of course, uh, listeners, I'm inviting you now to, you know, come up with some jokes and tweet them at the show. We're uh, <laughs> at BLDGS on air on Twitter. So, you know, come up with your best, take, take your best shot. Uh, but, but serious question, though. I mean, uh, I mean, we talk a lot about zoning, but um, I think the presentation you gave was really interesting and sort of giving a little bit of a, the background on like what, what zoning is, first of all, in like the broadest possible sense, but also like what, like where it comes from, like what's its legal basis. So I'm wondering if you could give the listeners some of that kind of like, you know, um, solid, solid foundation. Oh yeah. I love to do this. Um, actually my, uh, when I was in law school, uh, I wrote uh, an article for the law review. Um, I don't remember what they're formally called a note or something. There's some technical term for it, but uh, that was about land use and zoning. Um, so I actually did quite a bit of research on the history of it. Um, and one of the most interesting things is that there have been sort of species of zoning laws in the U.S. going back to the colonial times. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were, for example, there were laws in, I think, Virginia and Massachusetts at a minimum that were like, you know, no, no property no structure, residential structure could be built more than X number of miles from a church or a, mm. a place of worship, um, which is a form of zoning that was, I think, meant to, you know, serve a variety of purposes. First, a, a policy purpose of everybody should go to church, but also probably more so uh, um, they didn't want people too far on the outskirts um, where they would potentially be coming up against, you know, the indigenous people who were probably not too happy about their land theft. And so therefore would strain the sort of ability of the town to, you know, uh, provide militia protection or whatever, you know, there, there, there were, uh, both sort of moral and, uh, practical purposes for, for rules like that. There were also zoning rules, this in particular in Virginia, I think, uh, uh they weren't called zoning rules, but there was land use rules about, um, use of use of land if land wasn't being worked or developed 
for a purpose for X number of years, um, then it was considered abandoned and somebody else could basically go squat on it. Uh, and um, so th- there have always been these types of land use rules. Zoning, as we understand it, didn't really come about until the early part of the 20th century, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when it was, it, it started to um, come up in a more formalized way, may have been part of sort of progressive uh, sort of like the progressive movement idea of like rationalizing, um, you know, rationalizing governance and rationalizing mm-hmm. government and stuff. Um, and it's rooted in the, in some common law traditions. Uh, so the U S is a common law country and that's why, you know, just like the United Kingdom, we get a lot of our, uh, our legal doctrines through court made law, common law, mm-hmm. common law doctrine of nuisance. Uh, was a sort of conceptual source for zoning, which was basically one person's use of their property can should not create a nuisance for surrounding uh, properties, and 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 you could sue for nuisance. Nuisance is a common law. Um, it's it's a it's a common law. I'm not sure if it's a tort actually, but it's something you can sue for under the common law. You can sue somebody for creating a nuisance, a private nuisance, and nuisance usually involves. Um, uh, usually involves some kind of trespass. Um, you know, some somebody's doing something on their land that's causing something to happen on your land. Mm-hmm. Um, most traditionally, it was like seepage, or you know, you're not taking care of the brush and it's coming onto my property. That would be considered a nuisance. Later on, it came to mean more things like obviously pollution and noise, mm-hmm. um, and 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 stuff like that. Those things could be considered creating nuisance. So, so these common law, um, these common law ideas kind of started people wanted to rationalize and formalize them into the form of these zoning codes. And the zoning code um, divides the land of a city or county or some local uh, local sub-entity of state mm-hmm. um, into zones, each, w- each of which can only be set to a particular use. Um, each zone only allows certain uses of the land in the zone. So it's obviously a it's a land use um, it's it's a land use tool, uh, but um, there was a problem. Um, the the ability to create zones, the, the ability of like local governments to create zones, is rooted in the police power. What's called the the what's referred to in the law as the police power, which is the right of under common law and in general is is the police power sort of the the power of the of the government to act in the general health, safety, and welfare of the public. And it's kind of considered an unlimited right. It's only limited by the constitutional rights of individuals vis-a-vis the police power. Um, Mm. But there was a problem, a couple things. One, the federal government does, the U.S. Congress does not have the police power. The Mm. U.S. Congress has enumerated powers. It only has those powers the Constitution give it. State governments, however, are sovereigns and do have the police power um, unless uh, they're preempted by the federal government or, or they're pro- prohibited by people's individual rights. Mm-hmm. So the problem they came across when they start, wanted to start creating zone, zone, zoning codes for cities was property owners uh, resisted them often uh, because they said it violated their, um, their right over their property, their right to use mm-hmm. their property as they wished. Um, and they would bring what are known as takings challenges to these zoning codes. So there was a major case many of your listeners may have heard of, um, which is 
Ambler Realty versus the city of Euclid, Ohio, mm-hmm. um, where they challenged a zoning code in Euclid, Ohio. Uh, that was a, a cumulative, I believe it was a cumulative zoning code, meaning, um, you know, this area would be zoned for residential use. This area would be zoned for commercial use. This area would be zoned for industrial use. And in each zone, you could you could only set the land to a use up to the highest sort of intensity. Hmm. Um, and property owners sued, and they claimed it was a taking of their land. And so what they uh, were resorting to was the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, as applied to the states of the Fourteenth Amendment, which says that uh, you cannot the, the the state cannot take the land of uh, an individual except for just compensation and Im- impliedly after a due process. And they said, you know, when you come in and you tell me I can't use my land in this way, you're essentially taking it. You, you're, mm-hmm. you're limiting my ability to use it. Um, the, the Supreme court ultimately held that that type of zoning was not unconstitutional. And that's where we get the term Euclidean zoning. Um, if you've ever heard that, uh, yeah. it sounds like it has something to do with geometry, but it actually has to do with the city of Euclid. <laughs> Um, uh, and, and since then there've been a lot of, uh, a lot of different varieties of, you know, zoning codes have evolved quite a bit. If you go to the zone, if you go to the municipal code of any city, whatever city you're, you're in Chicago, wherever you look up the municipal code, you'll see that the zoning code, sometimes it's called the land development code or the planning code. Usually it's kind of offset will be set off from the rest of the municipal code because they're so big and, and detailed. You know, um, they're almost right. universally the, the most, the biggest and most complex part of a, uh, of a municipal code because they're very complicated and it's very hard to make, it's very hard to make a zoning code that will not end up getting the city constantly sued mm-hmm. <laughs> or end up with a lot of uneven, terrible development that you don't want. So as a result, these zoning codes are very big and sprawling over the years as the zoning codes evolved to be more sophisticated, uh, you know, property owners would regularly sue uh, and challenge the, the, some element of the zoning code either as written um, uh, or as applied. And so you, you can sue because, you know, the zoning code is facially unconstitutional or you can sue because it's unconstitutional as applied to your property. Um, and, uh, that that resulted in a, a, a new doctrine, a new body of jurisprudence, then known as regular regulatory takings. Um, and the, one of the key cases there is a case called Penn Central, uh, which actually result, revolved around um, application of a, a historical district around the train station in New York. Um, I believe uh, they wanted to build something that was a certain height, and the the you know the the uh, historical preservation rules didn't allow it. And then they said that was in effect a taking of their property under the fifth amendment. Uh, and then the, the Supreme court enumerated something that's known as the Penn central test to determine whether something, uh, a zoning regulation is actually a regulatory taking. Um, and then there's been numerous sort of takings rooted challenges to zoning enactments ever since. This week on The Biden Files, Trump wanted to send people with COVID to Guantanamo Bay. The GOP filibusters voting reform. Is an infrastructure deal finally done? Trump wanted to shut down SNL. American Catholic bishops attack Biden. Michigan Republicans trash Trump. And Juneteenth is a holiday. 
Wild Times on The Biden Files. Day 150, June 18th. Mitch McConnell said he would reject Senator Joe Manchin's voting rights compromise offer, which focused on expanding early voting, requiring voter ID, ending partisan gerrymandering in federal elections, having at least 15 consecutive days of early voting, and making Election Day a public holiday. McConnell said that Republicans will filibuster the voting bill. Republican-led states have been enacting ever more onerous limits on voting in the wake of Trump's 2020 loss. The Education Department has canceled more than $500 million in federal student loan debt for 18,000 borrowers who were defrauded by the now-defunct for-profit ITT Technical Institute. That college chain closed in 2016 after making grossly exaggerated claims about its graduates' employment and earning prospects after graduation. The House has voted to repeal the 2002 authorization for the use of military force in Iraq. The 2002 authorization was repeatedly applied beyond its original intent, despite the Iraq war ending nearly a decade ago. Biden said he supports repealing the authorization. Mitch McConnell, however, disagreed, calling it reckless. The Biden administration announced it would invest $3.2 billion to develop antiviral pills for COVID-19. Such a treatment could keep people out of the hospital and potentially save many lives in the years to come. The virus is expected to become a perennial threat. A number of other viruses, including HIV and hepatitis, can be treated orally. So far, only one antiviral drug has demonstrated a clear benefit to people with COVID, remdesivir. The United Kingdom has reported a staggering $2.5 billion loss in sales of food and drink exports post-Brexit. Britain's dairy farmers lost 90% of their overseas income, largely due to Britain's exit from the European Union's common market. Sales to other parts of the world have stabled post-COVID. Juneteenth is now officially a federal holiday. President Biden signed the measure one day after the House voted overwhelmingly to enshrine June 19th as a national day to commemorate the end of slavery in the United States. It is the first new national holiday established since Martin Luther King Day in 1983 and will go into effect immediately, making this the first Juneteenth. Day 151, June 19th. A Florida Republican congressional candidate threatened his Republican opponent with a Russian and Ukrainian hit squad that would make her disappear. William Braddock repeatedly warned a conservative activist on tape not to support Anna Paulina Luna in the Republican primary for a Tampa Bay area congressional seat. Braddock called Luna a speed bump in the road. On tape, she said, she's a dead squirrel you run over every day when you leave the neighborhood. I really don't want to have to end anybody's life, but it needs to be done. It needs to be done. Luna, last week, accused Brannock of conspiring to kill her, said she could not comment on the recording due to multiple ongoing law enforcement investigations of this matter. Day 152, June 20th. The Taliban has taken two provincial capitals in northern Afghanistan, capping an insurgent offensive that took advantage of the United States' withdrawal from the battlefield. The Islamist terrorist group have overrun dozens of rural districts and captured hundreds of government forces and their military equipment in recent weeks. The attacks, which came after President Biden followed through on a pledge to extricate America from a seeming forever war, have led Afghan leaders to complain that the United States is leaving a mess in their nation. American Roman Catholic bishops flouting a warning from the Vatican overwhelmingly voted to draft guidance on the sacrament of the Eucharist, which would deny communion to the faithful who support abortion rights. The move is seen as an explicitly political targeting of President Biden, who is arguably the most pious observer since Jimmy Carter to hold the nation's highest office. 
The move to target a president who regularly attends mass is unprecedented and dissonant following conservative Catholic support of Trump, who was continually mired in sexual scandal. The United States has slapped more sanctions against Russia in response to the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. Biden imposed sanctions on Russia for the poisoning and imprisonment of Navalny. Those were directed at Putin and the oligarchs who support him. 10 million Americans enrolled in Medicaid during the pandemic. Roughly 80 million people are now covered by Medicaid. That is nearly a quarter of the entire U.S. population. Federal health officials attributed the boost in enrollment to the Families First Coronavirus Response Act approved by Congress in March 2020. Day 153, June 21st. Officials in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office have said that the Trump Organization's CFO, Alan Weisselberg, is now not cooperating with their investigation. Weisselberg is a key figure in prosecutors' efforts to indict Trump due to his central role in nearly every aspect of the Trump Organization. Cyrus Vance's investigators have been pressing Weisselberg to provide evidence implicating Trump. They believe Trump inflated the value of assets to obtain bank loans and then deflated the value of those same assets for tax breaks. Officials also believe Weisselberg continues to regularly speak with Trump. And Trump asked his White House staff if he could send Americans infected with COVID to Guantanamo Bay in Cuba in an effort to suppress the number of cases on U.S. soil. Trump reportedly asked, don't we have an island that we own? What about Guantanamo? Trump also brought it up another time saying, we import goods, we're not going to import a virus. AIDS eventually scuttled the idea of quarantining Americans on the same base where the U.S. holds terror suspects. Day 154, June 22nd. Senate Republicans filibuster debate on what would have been the most expansive federal election overhaul in generations. The bill proposed was a reaction to the Russian Republican-led states to enact restrictive voting laws and would have expanded ballot access and limited the impact of special interests on the political process. Democrats are now hoping to put Republicans on record with their opposition to voting access. Democratic leadership is also considering doing away with the filibuster entirely. Mitch McConnell called the bill, which would expand early voting and partisan gerrymandering, make it easier to vote by mail, and make Election Day a federal holiday a, quote, partisan power grab. Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona defended her opposition to nixing the legislative filibuster, saying, quote, we will lose much more than we gain. In an op-ed, Sinema argued that a majority rule Senate would lead to ricochet legislating, suggesting that Republicans would just roll back any Democratic policy gains. A socialist candidate is now poised to become the first mayor of a major city in America for the first time in 60 years. India Walton beat Buffalo's four-term Democratic mayor in a primary upset that is likely to reorient New York state politics. Walton is likely to win the general election in heavily blue upstate New York. She would also be the first female mayor in Buffalo's history. The highly contagious COVID Delta variant is now spreading in under-vaccinated pockets and will become the predominant strain in the United States within weeks. Delta now accounts for 14% of all new infections in the U.S. Studies suggest it's around 60% more transmissible than the original COVID strain. Trump asked aides in 2019 to look at what the Justice Department and the FCC could do to punish Saturday Night Live and other shows for mocking him. After watching a rerun of SNL in 2019, Trump tweeted that the episode was not funny, no talent, and kept knocking the same person, me, over and over without so much of a mention of the other side. Should Federal Election Commission and or FCC look into this? 
Trump then reportedly asked both advisors and lawyers about what the FCC, the courts, and the DOJ could do to investigate the shows. Trump apparently had to be repeatedly told that the shows are satire, which is a form of protected speech, and that as a public figure, he enjoyed no protections. It was also revealed that during an off-the-rails appearance in front of NATO in 2018, a White House aide frantically roamed the halls of a conference center in Europe looking for a fire alarm to pull in the hopes of interrupting Trump's harangue of America's allies. Day 155, June 23rd. The Supreme Court has done away with a California regulation allowing union organizers to recruit agricultural workers at their workplaces. The decision vacated a major achievement of the farm workers movement led by Cesar Chavez in the 1970s, which had argued that allowing organizers to enter workplaces was the only practical way to give nomadic farm workers a realistic chance to consider joining a union. The ruling was the latest blow to unions from a court that has been remarkably hostile to organized labor. Four Saudi operatives who killed the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi received paramilitary training in the U.S. just one year prior. The training of the Saudi Royal Guard was approved by the State Department and provided by an Arkansas-based security company. Khashoggi was killed and dismembered after he entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in 2018. The CIA concluded that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman directed that operation personally. Trump later bragged he protected the prince from Congress after ordering the assassination of Khashoggi. Russian aircraft and Coast Guard ships fired on a British warship sailing near Crimea. The patrol ship fired warning shots and a jet dropped bombs into the path of the HMS Defender as it sailed some 12 miles off Crimea's coast. Russia claims the waters off Crimea are its territory. The United Kingdom says its ship was passing through a commonly used and internationally recognized transit route. President Biden has moved to immediately replace the director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which oversees mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The Supreme Court ruled that Biden had the authority to replace that agency's director, Mark Calabria, who had been appointed by Trump. Trump hoped that COVID-19 would take out his former national security advisor, John Bolton. That revelation came in a new book that also details that Trump was in fact much sicker with COVID than revealed at the time. Trump was apparently in critical condition at Walter Reed Hospital. His staff was so unprepared that they had not briefed Vice President Mike Pence on taking over as the chain of command requires. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has vetoed a bill that would have required schools to teach children about domestic violence and child abuse. Abbott also vetoed a bill that would have banned the use of heavy chains to tether dogs outside and leave them without drinkable water, adequate shade, or shelter. Day 156, June 24th. Rudy Giuliani has been suspended from practicing law in the state of New York due to his false statements about the 2020 election. A New York court has ruled that Giuliani made demonstrably false and misleading statements to courts, lawmakers, and the public in his capacity as a lawyer for Trump. Nancy Pelosi said she will appoint a select committee to investigate the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Her move came after Senate Republicans blocked the creation of an independent but partisan commission. The House passed legislation last month to establish a bipartisan commission. Senate Republicans filibustered that bill. President Joe Biden is likely to endorse a bipartisan infrastructure framework clinched on Wednesday night. Under that framework, the package, led by Senators Kirsten Sinema and Rob Portman, would include $559 billion in new spending on roads, bridges, and other traditional infrastructure projects. 
Overall, the package would hit $1.2 trillion. It is unclear if it would have the support of Republicans at large or of progressive Democrats. A committee led by Michigan Republicans published an extraordinary debunking of voter fraud claims in their state. The 55-page report, produced by a Michigan State Senate committee of three Republicans and one Democrat, offers a systematic rebuttal to an array of false claims about the election from supporters of Trump. The report is remarkably unsparing in its criticism of those who promoted false theories, debunking claims from Trump allies including Mike Lindell, the chief executive of MyPillow, Rudy Giuliani, and Trump himself. It also called publicly for the prosecution of those people it called liars. The Biden administration forced out the head of the U.S. Border Patrol, Rodney Scott, clearing a path for a leadership overhaul at an agency seen as broadly sympathetic to Trump. Scott's departure was widely anticipated, with several colleagues surprised he remained in the post long after Biden's inauguration. During last year's campaign, Scott appeared several times alongside Trump, eagerly defending his hardline policies, leading some colleagues to privately express concern that Scott was veering into partisanship. The White House now does not expect to meet Biden's goal of having 70% of all adults at least partially vaccinated by July 4th. The United States, however, has hit that vaccination target among adults ages 30 and older. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed legislation requiring the state's public colleges and universities to survey students, faculty, and staff about their political views. DeSantis also signed two other education bills mandating new patriotism education in grammar schools that would include teaching about the so-called evils of communist and totalitarian governments. The first Capitol rioter has been sentenced. Anna Morgan Lloyd, a 49-year-old Indiana woman charged in the January 6th insurrection, who described it as the best day ever on Facebook, was sentenced to probation and no jail time after pleading guilty to a misdemeanor. As part of the plea deal, she agreed to pay $500 in restitution toward the nearly $1.5 million in damage the government has said the rioters caused. Defendants who plead guilty to felony charges have agreed to pay $2,000. 900 Secret Service employees tested positive for the coronavirus since March 2020. More than half, that is 477 of them, were responsible for personally protecting Trump, Pence, and their families. That is 11% of the Secret Service overall. These are the Biden Files. Mario Smith spoke to Andres Hernandez about the slew of public art projects coming to Chicago in the wake of the pandemic. Hernandez, who teaches at the Art Institute, discusses why public art is so important, how communities of color have historically used it to communicate, and why Chicago is a worldwide hub for the medium. News from the Service Entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2. Pieces of public art that people can say yes to as opposed to snatch it down. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for that great question. Sorry, I had uh, Simba, a.k.a. Cujo, in the background barking. So uh, right on right on cue, he's ready for uh, radio, too. Absolutely. That's a great question. You know, you know the city's in a reevaluation period as, as the whole, as our nation is, of course, uh, given all the activism around um, these uh, monuments to white supremacy and the Confederacy. Um, I've been involved in the several of the Department of Cultural Affairs, D cases, um, conversations around monuments and sort of reimagining what they might look like from a culturally specific standpoint, more culturally and historically oriented, and also pulling down ones that we know are problematic history. So I think 
you know, we're like in the beginning conversation. I always think of these things as a um, as a journey and not quite a destination yet. It's an ongoing journey. So I think we're kind of in that first stage of the conversation and movement. And there's going to be some work to be done as we um, not only evaluate what's existing, but as um, our community, our city, all these amazing creative minds and talents uh, reimagine some new monuments, right? Some people that have been uh, left out, some uh, histories that have been left out or sort of buried. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next three to five years as these things come to light, including a major one, the Chicago Torture Justice Memorial, which we know um, has been approved in previous um, administration and, um, you know, needs to be pushed forward, trying to seek the funding. Uh, folks, if you're not familiar with that, just check out Chicago Torture Justice Memorial, their website, get active, get involved, and understand that's one of the main ones mm-hmm. that we need to make um, as a new vision for our city and, rep- and, and remembrance and then reparations for those who've been tortured by uh, John Burge in the past and some of his um, colleagues. So we want to throw it out there, too, a little plug to Chicago Torture Justice Memorial. Right on. And, uh, but, yeah. Yeah, but thinking about, yeah, like we, we're at a moment where um, we all need to rethink it. And I think from our standpoint and from where I am working with Wide Awake Chicago, uh, we're bringing um, a tour here, a monumental tour, courtesy of Kindred Arts. Um, we have our opening weekend this weekend. And so we're also using this tour as a way to um, think about two major African-American artists, uh, Hank Willis Thomas and um, Arthur Jaffa's work. Um, as a way to sort of begin to spark more conversation on a neighborhood level around what monuments people may want to see in their own neighborhood. And so we're excited about kicking those off this weekend and continuing those conversations throughout the summer. I know with particularly with uh, those two projects that are happening, and the reason why, full disclosure, folks, relax, everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm in on it. I already know what's happening with the two. <laughs> Be cool. Um, the the idea of being able to present in Inglewood and in Bronzeville, um, it's really important to give those areas, not just those two areas, because, of course, there's Austin and there's Lawndale and there's all the 77 neighborhoods in Chicago. And we only hear about six of them because they're on the news every night. But to have those pieces of art in those two neighborhoods, it's important. Optically, it gives it gives someone an opportunity to be inspired by the work. They may want to be a visual artist. They may want to just be an artist in general. And to have that as an impetus to want to learn more about it is a great thing. Also, these neighborhoods in this city generally do not get the public art treatment per se. A lot of the things that are there have been there since the World's Fair. I'm thinking about the Golden Statue in Jackson Park. Um, uh, just things that have been in Chicago a long time. The idea of right. new work is really exciting. And I know that you as an artist have strong feelings about artists from Chicago who are presenting and able to create amazing works like that. Is the city moving toward more toward making sure that these new works that pop up um, are from, from folks who are from here as opposed to having to import art from other places around the U.S.? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, 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 you know, just to be, you know, in all fairness, another city has had, um, you know, a database of um, Chicago artists for their public art mm-hmm. registry and databases as well. And, um, you know, even from, you know, CTA stations to airports to other things, there's always, um, you know, an interest in, in making sure that Chicago artists are represented. So that's definitely the case. And I think in terms of these monuments, 
that's also the case, really thinking about um, how to commission um, local talent to actually reproduce, or sorry, sorry produce uh, new uh, monuments. And so even the last, the most recent D-Case grants, I can't remember um, the name of it right now, but uh, there were a number of um, amazing artists, some of who are colleagues of mine, who were actually funded to, um, to actually imagine new memorials and monuments for the city um, over the next year or so. So, yeah, the city, you know, has the investment in it. You know, I'll also say that there's also been just a, um, just in terms of history, folks who may not be from Chicago and know these histories, you know, there's been a, um, um, there's always been sort of mural movement, right? Uh, amazing. Maybe, maybe even say the, 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 the national mural movement actually started here in Chicago, right, with the Wall of Respect as well. And so there's always been a heavy sort of mural presence as, um, as public art. There's also been, you know, community-based artists, folks who look like the folks in the neighborhood that are making the work in that's always been here in Chicago. And there's also been, you know, sculptures and some other 3D works. But to your point, these sort of larger, you know, more quote-unquote monumental works, um, those are things that we typically inherited, right, because they're histories that, um, that really reflect either, um, you know, the politics of the city, politics of uh, people who are funding the projects, or even just the kind of histories of who was in the neighborhood prior to other um, groups moving in over time, right? And so you have statues and plaques and, and obelisks and cenotaphs and things you don't even know what they are popping up in your park or around the corner from you. And so now is a good time to sort of, you know, take a look, open our eyes, as we say, we're wide awake, open our eyes and stay woke and kind of really pay attention to the things we see in the built environment and understand that we can write ourselves and build ourselves and our history into the built environment similarly. And before I go deeper into what's happening this weekend, um, tomorrow and and, uh, Saturday, and I'm surprised that I even know the day of the week. Um, I want to (laughs) just... I want to go back to the idea of art that has been in this city forever and, and, and the committee that you're on and dealing with these things. The approach that you all have, is it to, is it to completely erase or is it to enhance what's already there and just get rid of the things that just don't sit well in this environment and this 2021 uh, time period that we live in? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so you know, I'm not the I'm not the official spokesperson. Oh, no. uh, for the committee, but, right. but but I play one on radio. Yes, sir. On that's radio, right. Y'all. That's right. <laughs> so, and they're all <laughs> listening too. Every one of them, and I know all of them. The and whole I world. Even, I ain't even. <laughs> I ain't even telling. Hey, look. <laughs> look. Go ahead, go ahead, Barbara. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. You go ahead, brother. I'm just gonna sit no. here. Look, 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 if I say if I, if I say the right thing, I might get the boot on my car in an hour. So, <laughs> you know, we'll we'll see. Now, let me let me stop quick, quick playing. But no, no. But the uh, but the city. So the city. Great question. The city's doing. The city that I know of is doing two things. Whether that I've been that I've been involved in or you know been in conversations around. So one is um, they created a, a database or uh, there's a whole website for this, the Monuments Project for the city, city of Chicago, Chicago Monuments Project. And there's a whole database that's just like they've identified about 40 um, problematic monuments, memorial sculptures, like right, statues, right, mm-hmm. across the city. And, and that's various histories, right, from, you know, Stephen Douglas to, um, you know, other folks as well. And so there's, there's one thing to say, like, you know, let's identify what the problematic artworks are. And then, two, try to figure out what to do with those things, right? Like, it's not just about just take them down, strike them down, because there's histories. There's feelings and emotions tied to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, so there's also that conversation of like, so once we identify them, how do we engage the public in, in, 
is what to do with it. So asking the public, what do we do with these things? Do these things get taken down? Do they get stored? Do they get covered? Do they get whatever? That's kind of one piece of it. And then the second piece is like in that, in those conversations, then imagining or, you know, what could be in their place, not necessarily at those specific, specific sites, but at public spaces, public parks, et cetera, across the city. So I think like, it's good to have both things happening, right? And it's also good to have a conversation around, you know, one, like what are the histories of these people, you know, that these, um, these things have gone up to or been named for, just like the names of um, some of our schools in the city, right, which right. may have problematic histories based on the names of the people. So that's kind of one piece, like how do we educate the public around these histories and what's wrong with it? Two, how do we engage the public in not just, you know, saying, you know, yes and no to it, it should come down, it should stay up, but really, like, what's more nuanced conversation around what we want to do with them, with these, so we can learn from them. And then the third part is about coming out of those things. Now, what do we really want to see happen in terms of this? And, you know, of course, there's not enough, there's never, I mean, there's always enough money, there's money out here, but there's never quite enough money or quite enough resources to make everyone's idea of a monument happen or a memorial happen. And so, how do we also develop a process where communities can kind of come to terms with these things themselves and also develop these things that they want to see in their own communities themselves, right, with some support from the city or support from other folks as well. So uh, hopefully I'm doing a good job of being a um, spokesperson. I can see the truck pulling up in my car right now. <laughs> That's a boot. <laughs> <laughs> Chicago's Heavy Manners, who were among the first two-tone-inspired ska bands in the Midwest, will be releasing a 2021 fresh mix of their 1982 single Flaming First on Friday, July 9th. We have it first. Here is Flaming First by Heavy Manners.
download complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. Uh, I'll start us off this evening okay. um, with a exciting new adventure in the world of molecular gastronomy. The art a very and adventurous, science. adventurous science. I, one of the one of the, there is nothing more adventurous than seeing what these certified savants, these polymaths, because. Mm-hmm. Um, Molecular gastronomy, for the the sake of the listener, is the intersection of chemistry and biology and and physics, and, and, and physics thermodynamics, and and the stomach and f- food. Mm. This is the the cutting edge of what food can be, what is edible. Um, you know, think of individuals who created things such as edible underpants. Of course, this was many many years yeah, ago this when this was created, but that was that was a a breakthrough. It um, was. Think of, of I uh, Think of nebula mushrooms think of um tapioca pearls but instead of tapioca it's something perhaps like a bacon jam right. so it's sort of like a, a vulcanized soy as well perhaps perhaps um and and ever since the may 5th release of a study in scientific advances the publication mm-hmm. the high-end dining establishment has been going gaga for self folding pastas self-folding pastas that is correct self-folding pastas is this i mean please tell me more about this well the 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 technique which is essentially involves stamping patterns of grooves on mm-hmm. flat pieces of pasta interesting while they're dry when you cook them because of the differential in water absorption in the pasta pieces they right. self they they spontaneously form folds mm-hmm. in different manners that can be controlled by these grooves. By the grooves, by yes. the geometries of, of the you know uh, of the noodles themselves. Exactly, exactly. And, That's and fascinating. It was originally sort of conceived as this space saving sort of move. The mm-hmm. idea being that you can ship more pasta in a smaller area if it's flat. Right. But you know the first adopters of anything this groundbreaking of anything that 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 is f- this fundamentally changing to our perceptions mm-hmm. is the high-end establishment, the, right. the high-end, the, the, the groundbreakers. And molecular gastronomists have been at the foray of taking full advantage of this. Um, there That's are a amazing. number of self-folding pastas. You have your, your very well-known shapes such as uh, penne rigatoni. Those are capable of being produced. Okay. Also things like uh, rotini, gargella, you know, all of these very familiar pasta shapes to right. us that can be formed we- from a flat piece. Re- so- Really, so so you get like a, a noodle in it, and by in the process of cooking it, it turns into these these complex different shapes of pasta. Exactly, one hundred percent. That is what's occurring. That's that. This is revolutionary. It is. It is. It is. And, and you know, this is the IKEA approach to to uh, to create to food. It's yeah. really really quite disruptive, and and you know, there's the the procedural manifestation of it as well. You mm-hmm. know, that is very appealing in in that sort of that when you want to bring a like. When you want to look at a food and think about it for a long time before you bite into it, when As you want to, when when you look and you and you sort of you take the, the fork without right. piercing it, but move it around perhaps and <laughs> dollop the sauce and get an idea of the viscosity, taking it in As and a, analyzing this it. This is how scientists eat. But they eat with their eyes first. This really lends itself to that sort of approach. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. 
The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.